This evening I'd like to speak about stillness. Chang Su once said that the heart of the wise person is tranquil. It is the mirror of heaven and earth. Emptiness, stillness, tranquility, silence, non-action. This is the perfect how. Wise people here find their resting place. Here on a retreat, we offer to ourselves a gift of stillness. It's a time to rest, to listen, to calm our hearts and minds, to live all the moments that come to us as fully as we can. And I'm sure you've sensed over this week that this is a very rare gift, And at first, and maybe still, we may struggle to understand what it means to rest in stillness. It's kind of like entering a foreign country or an unfamiliar landscape. And at first, we have an intuition but not always an experience. And our hearts and minds can feel uneasy and uncertain unsure how to be here. It often feels like there's something missing. And it's true. There is something missing. What is missing in that resting or in that stillness is some of the perpetual, at times even most chronic, busyness and activity and movement that too often governs our lives. What's missing is this sense of urgency, all the doing that is often central to our life just doesn't seem to have much place. So at first, we find that although there's a kind of intuitive draw towards being more still, there's a part of us that just doesn't always welcome it. We can see the ways that we find ourselves almost longing for the familiarity of having something to do, of activity. Yet I understand, in my experience, that in offering to ourselves this gift of stillness, this time to stop, What we are offering to ourselves is the possibility of opening really into a very profound inner stillness that truly can transform our lives. In the Bhagavad Gita, it said, Teach us that even as the wonder of the stars in the heavens only reveals itself in the silence of the night, so the wonder of life reveals itself in the silence of the heart. Now, busyness, of course, can pervade our lives. Some of it we choose, and it is important and necessary. Our lives demand, you know, our days demand response. But 
sometimes we see the endlessness of doing. It's as if, you know, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, I wonder how many of you wake up in the morning and just have a don't know day. You know, an unplanned day. I mean, how many don't know days do we have in our life? Not very many, most of us. Sometimes our doing is a responsiveness to what needs to be done. And sometimes our doing has a different energy behind it, almost as if we learn to keep moving so that our lives don't spin out of control. And it can happen that activity and busyness becomes our primary vocation. You know, we're experts at doing. We're expert doers. But sometimes we become really strangers to stillness. And I think in becoming strangers to stillness, we also really can become strangers to ourselves. As if we gradually forget or lose the ability even to listen to some of the quieter truths about ourselves. We forget how to listen to the whispers of our hearts. Thomas Merton said, there is a pervasive form of contemporary violence, and this is overdoing and overwork. The rush and pressure of modern life is a fo- are a form perhaps the most common form of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to to surrender to too many demands, to commit to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of overdoing neutralizes our work for peace. It destroys our inner capacity for peace. In a different way, Lily Tomlin went on to say, the trouble with the rat race is that even if you win, you're still a rat. (laughs) (laughs) And to, to step out of doing, you know, to step out of all this activity and to sort of retire into a cloister or a monastery... You know, this isn't an option for most of us, but I think even most, more, more importantly, it's not necessarily an aspiration. We see that our life in the world can be an embodiment. Our, our doing in the world can truly be a communication of what we value and treasure and aspire to. And, you know, much of our challenge in life truly is to to kind of end this dualism of an inner life and an outer life. You know, an inner life that feels real and authentic and genuine, and then an outer life that suddenly, that somehow we feel is just kind of, um, you know, playing a part or, you know, uh, doing something that has to be done. And, you know, I think part of the harmony of our life is to bring this integration between inner and outer as much as we're able to. So we can see, actually, that almost everything that we do, it's not necessarily so relevant what it is we do, 
but that almost anything that we do can be an expression truly of engagement, of creativity. I personally don't believe that genuine inner stillness and tranquility demands that we live our life strapped to a meditation cushion. Our meditation would be rather ineffective if this was the only possibility of expression that allowed in our life. So our challenge, I feel one of our challenges, is really to learn how to marry inner stillness and activity. How to interweave non-doing and doing. How to interweave listening and and responsiveness. In Chinese calligraphy, the characters for, for busyness are two characters. And they translate, I think, somewhat literally as being heart-killing. And stillness, to me, is heart-awakening. And I think we do sense that stillness, just as you've tasted it here, you know, not only in the form of the retreat, but inwardly too. Stillness really lies at the heart of all the great spiritual traditions and pilgrimages. It's a vehicle that really invites us, teaches us how to stop, how to listen, how to dive beneath the words and the busyness and the concepts, and and to learn to begin to attend to some of the more unspoken truths of our life. And we see, you know, you read the stories of spiritual traditions and you read these stories over and over again of the times that people go to the stillness of forests, of deserts, of mountaintops, learning to be at home in stillness. In the native traditions of this continent, the elders have described stillness as the absolute poise and balance of body, mind, and spirit. And said that at ease in stillness, the warrior stands firm and unshaken by the storms of life. And asked what stillness is, they answer, it is the great mystery. But it is not just about retreat and non-engagement. You know, Gandhi, during the years of the British Raj, He counseled people to undertake times of stillness and silence. And he taught the people who were engaged in his nonviolent movement that if they were not to be overcome by the apparently immovable forces of anger and hatred around them, that they would need to find the inner equilibrium that could embrace rage and violence. So Gandhi used to welcome times when he was put in prison on one level because he said that there were always times of retreat. There were times of meditation. He said these were fertile times for him. Now in the moments when we feel exhausted in our life, when we feel overwhelmed at times, I think by some of the doing and busyness that can be part of our lives, we tend to get very romantic about stillness. You know, we imagine 
how we're going to relax and how we're going to delight in all this stillness and, you know, go on a retreat. And then, of course, we get here, and the reality is a little different than our romantic images. You know, so, so many people tell me before they come to a retreat, you know, there's longing for the stillness and longing for the silence. And then they get here and they discover this allergy. And do we want to? No way. No one be still. You know, I know in, in you know, my early years of teaching, I, I, the first time I went on a vacation, you know, this was a really novel thing. You know, I went on a vacation and I went to the, I went to some Greek island. I think it was a Greek island, yeah. And you know, I was sitting there, and I and I realized, you know, I was sitting on this sunbed by the side of the pool, upright. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, what am I doing here? You know, it's like there I was. You know, I was. Uh, it's almost like I was waiting for an interviewer. You know, waiting. <laughs> like I was ready to be on. And I was like, okay, now what does it mean, like, just to breathe out here? I mean, instead of, of, of kind of the delight of stillness, what we first experience is the starvation of the doer, the fasting of the doer. And we find ourselves, you know, somewhat challenged, even threatened, by understanding the degree of identity and worth that we can invest in all the doing in our life. I mean, as much as some of that activity is born of wise responsiveness, very, responding to the very real needs and demands in our life, we also experience this whole realm of activity and doing that is generated by inner restlessness and anxiety. We see that our sense of identity worth, our our desire for approval, for praise, even love is sometimes invested in everything that we do by the kind of activities we generate and the results we produce. It's almost as if we see doing as the way that we earn our place in the world, as if we're not worthy unless we've earned our place. You see with our children, you know, I say, you know, as small children, you know, five years old, you know, we're asking them, what are you going to do in life? What are you going to become? These are little kids, you know. I'm supposed to become something, you know. I remember talking to someone who lived a very busy life, and they told me that in their office and somewhat in their profession, that an empty space in their diary was an indicator of failure. So sometimes it's really hard to settle into stillness. You know, our first, our second, and our third impulse is to generate activity, to point to something we can accomplish, accomplish, or if we can't do that, you know, because it's hard to feel that accomplished in meditation, really. Um, if we can't do that, we distract ourselves at any cost, So what we really experience as we settle into stillness is the kind of the restlessness of me, the anxiety of me that kind of needs a description to feel secure, to feel safe, to feel as if we have a place in the world. 
This is the practice, mindfulness practice. It's a practice of calming the events. Calming the events of our life. Calming the events of our minds and bodies and hearts. Identity is in events. It's really in events. You know, if you meet someone you haven't met for a couple of years, you know, and say, hi, how are you? And then they say, well, how's your life being? You know, what do you talk about? All the events. You know, I did this and this happened and that happened, you know, and now I'm doing this and then I'm going here. We don't ever talk about being. We talk often about doing. We see how that anxiety of me can get reborn as the meditator. You know, because quite frankly, once your work period's over here, not much for you to do. You know, I I found interesting last year when I was on retreat at the Forest Refuge, you know, and I had a really useless work period. I mean, you know, nobody would have noticed whether I did it or didn't do it. You know, it was a completely irrelevant task. But somehow there was this ethos, you know, we all had to do something. You know, it was a teacher's retreat. We all had to do something, you know. So I thought, okay, I'll do this useless task, you know, as well as I can. Then one day I found myself feeling grateful because somebody had spilled some crumbs on the floor. (laughs) It's pathetic, isn't it? Because the rest of my work periods there, you know, I walked around with a brush and a pan. And I walked around for an hour, and I never picked anything up. <laughs> Just walked around being perfectly useless for an hour. Every day, you know, it was kind of neat. But it's not something that we always feel comfortable. So we can transfer the anxiety of me into our meditation, and we have a new mission. <laughs> we get concerned with the results of our meditation, and we think we have to make something happen. We have to make something happen, you know. There's got to be something to evaluate or to compare. We're determined sometimes we're going to get something out of this. As Rodney said, you know, we have to get something out of it. We've got to have take-home value. (laughs) Somebody once asked me that about a retreat. You know, what's the take-home value? (laughs) (laughs) An extraordinary concept, the take-home value. (laughs) But it's why we practice sometimes so heroically and hard because, you know, although clearly there is an aspiration and direction in our practice, it's not that we do this to stay the same. You know, we are here. There's an aspiration to calm our minds and bodies, to nurture peace and compassion, to awaken our hearts, to liberate ourselves from confusion and alienation. But And there's a great art, though, to practicing in such a, in a purposeful way without having any purpose at all. I think that's the great secret of meditation. How to practice in a purposeful way without having any purpose at all. Because we do see that on one level, this is, you know, I encourage people to have completely forgettable sittings. I think that's really good practice. Have a completely forgettable sitting, a completely forgettable walking, so that when you get up off the cushion, 
you know, you're not carrying any residue from that that then becomes a reference point for your next sinning. Is it better? Is it worse? Am I getting somewhere? Am I not getting somewhere? You know, have a completely forgettable walking. I mean, we do see that on one level, you know, the practice is quite pointless. You know, we're walking. We're not going anywhere. We're, we're walking just to walk. We're sitting. We're not sitting to go anywhere either. We're sitting just to sit. We're, we're breathing just to breathe. And it's very hard to grade progress. And isn't that a relief? It's not a relief not being able to grade our progress. We're sitting to be awake. But there are times when our kind of fixation with identity, our sense of self in doing, really resists this mightily. You know, we, we have this phrase, a waste of time. Isn't that amazing? Something's a waste of time. What does that mean? That something's a waste of time. For me, it must mean that actually, you know, it didn't produce something. I mean, most people in the world, if they look at us here, they would say, what a waste of time. Isn't that great? That we can have something that is a waste of time. Now, when the anxiety of the doer comes in, meditation becomes something to do. You know, we we set our own goals, you know, this sitting, I'm going to have five breaths in a row, you know. I'm going to measure how many times I moved and whether that's more or less than the last time, you know. And then I'm going to try and figure out at the end of the sitting how many insights I had. (laughs) We, We can kind of set our own goals. And then, of course, what do we introduce into meditation? Success and failure. It didn't exist before. It didn't exist apart from the goals. Doing better, doing worse didn't exist apart from the images and then the doing we generate to serve those images. There was no success, there was no failure, there was no better, there was no worse. There is, just is. What is? So meditation can become really a new project. And we can forget that the heart of our practice simply to be wakeful within all things. Now, stillness can become and is actually a profound mirror for our heart and mind because we can begin to sense what are the roots, what are the origin of our doing. And sensing the roots, the origins of our doing is, of course, a place of great insight and liberation. We can see sometimes our activity is generated really by impulse and by moods what we've called mental states here. If we feel unsettled and feel a little bit too empty, you know, what do we, how do we respond to that? Those are the times when we're at the notice board, not reading, reading not just once, but three or four times the same notice. Have you missed it? You know, it's like we don't have a group today, but we know who has. <laughs> But we've got, you know, we've got them memorized. You know, we've got their names. We know more about Thai food tea than we ever needed or wanted to know. And we've read the back of that tea packet how many times? 
It's not just what we keep going back to. It. It's like we are generating something to fill the space. We are looking at restlessness, you know, and at times, if that anxiety of me doesn't find something to do in the in the external world, well, I have to tell you about a project without end, and that is rearranging our minds. Now that's going to keep us busy for a long time. I mean, it's a project that has no end at all. So stillness asks us to fast. To fast within the restlessness. To fast within the anxiety. To be deeply present with just what is instead of roaming. And the doer wants to fix and to alter, to get and to get rid of, almost as a way of controlling the moment. I think perhaps feeling as if we're almost too vulnerable in stillness. As if we feel almost too vulnerable in being with life as it is. So we want to flee and abandon that vulnerability. But really we're kind of fleeing from and abandoning ourselves. So being still invites us to open into that vulnerability, to touch that inner landscape with a profound sensitivity, to listen to what our bodies and minds and hearts are saying to us. As Thomas Merton once said, be still, listen to the stones of the wall, be silent. They try to speak your name. Listen to the living walls. Who are you? Who are you? I think the reason that stillness can be frightening is that it seems to invite us to meet a stranger we think we may not want to know. And that stranger is ourselves. Can we learn to rest In that edge, that point where we want to flee, to fix, get rid of, can we rest without judgment, without blame, to make space for the busyness of our own hearts? There are many layers to restlessness. You know, do you ever wonder, I mean, I think many people do find themselves wondering, you know, what is the energy that keeps the incessant busyness of the mind going? You know, when, when we see that it exhausts us and when we see we have to have a name for everything and, and the, you, know, you know that tea constant comment? <laughs> that was named by somebody who really knew their own mind. <laughs> constant comment. Everything, you know, because I just, uh, you know, does a tree ask to be known? Oh, that's green, that's big, that's nice, it's in the wrong place. You know, the, the, it's, it's like, so what do we do? We're consoling ourselves with our words. We're consoling ourselves, I think, comforting the anxiety of the doer. When we feel that anxiety, we displace the, pra- the, the restlessness of our life into our practice. But here, too, we learn to rest within restlessness. We learn to calm We learn to embrace the activities, to receive all things in stillness. It's so crucial not to separate the path 
and the goal. It's so crucial not to separate stillness and activity because calmness is not born of forcing. It's not a result of heroic effort. It's not a result of getting rid of anything. Stillness is born of being at peace with all things. In a monastery in Thailand, you know, we have a Western neurosis about quiet meditation places. You know, like people get really disturbed, you know, by, by frogs. You know, you must know when, when they were cutting the grass yesterday. Did anybody have the thought, oh, that's really interfering with my sitting? And of course, nobody here had that thought. <laughs> well, you know, you want to try practicing in Asia sometimes. You know, I, monastery I was in, well, you know, they were just always building. Scaffolding was always going. They were always building. They never stopped building. Any monastery I went to, a construction site. And whenever, you know, one time I went and I complained. The worst thing to do in a monastery town. I mean, you don't complain. I complain. How can you expect me to meditate with all this? said, how can you not? <laughs> how can you not? The monastery I was in in Thailand, you know, I had a little kuti in the women's section, a little hot in the women's section. I used to bring tour groups. <laughs> you know, so I would be sitting, you know, very virtuously in my hut. A door would be thrown open. <laughs> cameras flashing. <laughs> You know, this weird Western woman thinking she's going to be enlightened, you know, like, bring your friends, you know. Come see, you know. It's like, okay, you know, what do you do with that? You know, you don't complain. You don't complain. I mean, I, you know, did find in Asia. The best thing about being in Asia for me is I never got what I wanted. And mostly I got what I didn't want. So it was really good practice. But you see, sometimes we approach that and we think not complaining means suppressing. You know, we just got to push it down. You know, we, we, have to, we have to be holy and spiritual and just suppress or subdue the activities of our mind and heart because otherwise we feel we're just going to, you know, indulge in them. But I think stillness, genuine stillness is different. In that. I mean, you notice, you know, you walk outside here. You know, wouldn't it be lovely? You know, we think it would be lovely. It would be lovely if we walked outside here and we, you know, just had the sound of the birds, you know, and butterflies, you know, and the touch of the breeze. It's not how it is, though, is it? I mean, we'd like that in our life, too. But it's not like how it is, is it? We've got the trucks, you know, we've got the mosquitoes. We've got all those things that want to eat us in this <laughs> weird state, climate that we have that is here. You know, so it's interesting to say you have them both. So that's kind of like our sitting, isn't it? I mean, our practice would be nice if we had only lovely thoughts and nice sensations and nice sounds and nice memories. Well, maybe some of you do. But, but actually, we, we sit differently, do we? Because we sit with the willingness to have an awareness that encompasses all things encompasses all things. So we see in that, of course, you know, this big movement of likes and dislikes, of welcoming, of dismissing, 
But then we start to see that the agitation's not really in the butterflies, or in the mosquitoes versus the butterflies, but it's in actually the prejudices. You know, and peace is not the absence of the unpleasant. Peace is the absence of prejudice. In the Tao, it said, you know, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. But we have a lot. We find that we do have a lot, and we do find that we have a lot of activity to generate a world which really is in accord with our preferences. So there's always a tension. Now, in in nurturing stillness, in discovering stillness, we're invited to follow a different path. All of us have and do extend a lot of activity and effort in our life to create a world which feels as authentic and wise as it can be, that releases suffering and pain, cultivating a life that allows ourselves to be as most creative as we can possibly be. And that is so wonderful. And then we are also asked to discern where a lot of our activity is less than wise, when it is the impulse to protect ourselves or in search of that elusive perfection that we've spoken about. Just as agitation can live in our own hearts and minds, so too does balance and stillness. We settle more deeply into calmness, and that question of who are we, who are we, is really brought into the light of attention. And if, when we are stripped of doing an identity, if we have the patience not to be lost in the waves of dullness or discontent or restlessness, we can find the space to attend to some of the most central questions of our life. What is it that makes our hearts sing? What is it that we treasure and value? What is it that we most deeply long for and aspire to? As Wilke said, I would beg you to have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a foreign language. Don't search for the answers which could not be given to you now because you might not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything, to live the questions now. If we have the patience to stay with the questions, then we see there is interest. And interest keeps us showing up. And every time we show up, when we sit, when we walk, Every time we show up for our life, we see that our interest and our attention illuminates the life that we have. Not just the lovely and delightful moments, but also the moments of frustration and disappointment and doubt. We treat them like invited guests rather than gate crashers. We learn to rest in that illumination rather than resting in the isolating of one thing from another. You know, the train station I go to a lot in London, it has this sushi bar. And it's so interesting because in this sushi bar, there's this, you know, it's arranged in an oval, 
where everybody sits around the outside of this kind of big oval. And on the inside of this oval, there's a little train track. And it goes round and round with endless different sushi dishes. You know, and the point is that you can just kind of pick off whatever you want from the train track, you know, and, and kind of choose as you, you know, feel moved. And I thought it's kind of like life. You know, like there's this train track that keeps going around. But, you know, we could just kind of, like, keep picking everything off it, you know. And, you know, I don't like the look of that one, you know. I like, and we could just sit there and watch the train, you know, watch the sushi dishes going round and round and round and round, you know. It's like just to illuminate what's there rather than to feel so governed by this world of for and against. There's a piece of my favorite poem, and I, you, you know, uh, some of you know this whole poem, but I want to take just a few lines from it. When someone invites you to a party, remember what parties are like before answering. You're trying to remember something too important to forget. Trees, the monastery bell at twilight, a new project that will never be finished. Walk around like a leaf, knowing you could tumble any second. Then decide what to do with your time. I find this very wonderful. Then decide what to do with your time. But also then decide what to do with our attention. Stillness can be really rooted in the wisdom of our own life and our own experience. We've all been to the restlessness party many times. We've been to the aversion party. We've been to the dullness party. We've been to the anxiety party. We've been to the anger party. We've been to the resistance party. And we know the nature of those parties, don't we? We know the conversations we're going to have, and in silence, we know the conversations we're going to have with ourselves. We know the hangover we're going to (laughs) get. And maybe we see we don't need to keep taking up the same invitation again, hoping that just once the party's going to be different, or that the party's going to have a different outcome. Then we can decide to do not only with our time, but with our attention. We can choose with how we engage. You know, we can't choose not to engage with this world we're a part of, but we can choose how we engage with it. We can choose how we engage with all the waves and storms and ripples in our life and our mind. As I've mentioned, interest and attention are co-joined. So we explore in our practice and in our life the different qualities of attention. We know when it's important to dedicate ourselves to a very clear, one-pointed simplicity. Just breathe, just one step, just one sound. We know that our attention of one-pointedness is a kind of intimacy with that moment. Sometimes it's a way of leaving the party we don't need to be at. We know when it's important for us to settle into a more receptive attentiveness, the receptivity of listening 
to our bodies, listening to the moment, listening to what appears and to what disappears. We know when our attentiveness needs to have a much clearer edge of investigation, to know clearly and deeply what is happening in this moment. What is restlessness? From where does it spring? What is aversion? From where does it spring? What is stillness? What does it mean to rest within it? In a deeper level, I think wise attention holds all these elements of one-pointedness, of receptivity, of investigation, and the stillness and the calmness will come. In the Tao it said, Who is there that can make muddy water clear? But if allowed to remain still, it will gradually clear itself. We're not asked to choose between activity and stillness. Stillness is not inert. It's alive, it's receptive, it's vital, it's creative. An activity doesn't need to be driven by impulse or restlessness. It too can be a profound expression of the stillness of our own hearts and minds. Thomas Martin said, a compassionate heart, a responsive mind, acts of healing are not born of noise and restlessness, but of stillness. Trees, flowers, the stars, the moon, live and pass in stillness. So too our thoughts, all the events of our minds and lives. Stillness is the calmness of listening. We have just a moment quietly together.